Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Praise be to God. It's good to see everyone this afternoon. And um, ah, what a good God we have doing great things among us. I want to say thanks to Ben for holding the fort and administering the word last week whilst us marrieds were off enjoying the delights that was the marriage conference. Praise God. Thank you, my brother. Where's he gone? Tremendous job. Great time at community group this week. Um, yeah, yeah, let's not talk anymore about the marriage conference, do it? <laughs> we we want to consider our brethren, you know, and don't want to provoke anyone unto covetousness and such like. <laughs> Praise God, God is good. <clears throat> okay, we're in a study in First John, a sure assurance, and now we're going to be continuing our study as we look at chapter 2. And um, verses 18 onward, if you'd like to turn there. The God that we know as revealed in Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the unchanging God. And one of the great blessings of relationship with him is being able to have a certainty, is being able to have a sureness in our relationship with him. There are some beliefs where they they have what's called the law of abrogation. And that basically means that if God's revealed himself to be one way on this occasion, at some later point, he can what's called abrogate that or supersede that and reveal himself to be some, someone else or have different intents and different purposes. And yet we are comforted and made confident by the fact that the God we serve, the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the true and living God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the unchanging God in whom we can have complete confidence. And when it comes to eternal life, there is actually no other issue like it when it comes to us needing confidence. When it comes to us needing confidence. As I was preparing for this message, I was reminded of some lyrics to a song. It will be no surprise to you that it was a Christian rap song. (laughs) And the lyrics say, who's been teaching you? Who's been reaching you? Come over here. God's people want to speak to you. Who's been schooling you? I hope they ain't fooling you. It's too late to wait till the wake or the funeral. 
And I felt that that was a very fitting introduction to the message today. Who's been teaching you? Who's been reaching you? We're here because God wants to speak to you. Who's been schooling you? Have they been fooling you? It's too late to wait till the wake or the funeral. You see, to be sure about our eternal destiny is something that needs to happen now in this life. If we wait until all is said and done and we, 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 we leave this life and we die to see what happens, it's too late. Because the reality is, if you're wrong, there's nothing you can go back and do about it. And so God offers us confidence. He offers us confidence with regards to eternity. And this is what John speaks of in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so as we continue in our study today, we will see how despite the lies, despite falsehood, God is faithful to preserve his people in the truth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that we have complete confidence in you because you have given us confidence in you. It's not a misplaced confidence. It's not a false sense of assurance. But you provide assurance to those who would believe in your word. And so today we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and lives, helping us to appreciate and understand your word, that we might grow in confidence in you. And if there is anyone here who does not know you, Lord, and does not have confidence about where they would spend eternity, we pray that today they would be able to receive that confidence as your spirit witnesses to the truth of your word in their hearts, enabling them, as Bertram said earlier, to confess, to agree with you in their need of the Savior. And so we thank you for today, Lord, and we thank you for your word and pray that you would speak to us loud and clear, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. sure revelation God has granted a sure revelation of himself by which he sustains the faithful he sustains the believer we're looking at chapter 2 verses 18 to 3 3 so bear with me as I read through children it is the last hour And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. 
They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had been of us, for if they had been of us, sorry, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that if it did not know him, sorry, is that it did not know him. My apologies. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The revelation of God's word, as understood by the Holy Spirit, is the means by which Jesus is revealed to us, preparing us for the complete revelation of God. The revelation of God's word as understood by the Holy Spirit, is the means by which Jesus is revealed to us, preparing us for the complete revelation of God himself. What would be the point of heaven if God wasn't there? 
Often people who don't know God would love to go to a place called heaven only as long as God isn't there. And yet we appreciate that eternal life is more than just us seeking an eternal state of self-gratification. Being able to do what we want without any hindrance, being able to be with who we want, be able to say what we want and enjoy all that we might think is enjoyment. For so many people, that is their idea of eternal life. To just have a place where I'll be able to do what I want with no problems. How do we know this? Because that's how people view life most often. You know what? All I want is to be happy, people say. I just want to be happy. I want to be able to have this life with no problems and then I'll be happy. And yet we recognize that Eternal life as revealed by God is eternity spent with God. And it's only if you know God will that excite you. It's only if you know God will you look forward to that. It's only if you know God will that have any impact on your heart. And so God has given us means by which we can know him. And in knowing him, we have relationship with him. And in having relationship with him, we look forward to that time when we will have unhindered, unrestricted relationship with him for eternity. So picture the engaged couple. As you know, we have some among us. And the engaged couple are there planning the wedding, thinking about married life, and looking forward to that day when their relationship will take on a new dimension of intimacy. Not just physically, but in every sense. A whole new dimension of intimacy where they will be one. Now, they already have a relationship. They're engaged. They spend time with each other. They talk with each other. They get to know each other. But the reason they're planning a wedding and looking forward to marriage is because it offers a whole other level of intimacy. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what we have to look forward to in Christ Jesus. And as we receive the truth of the word, Jesus is revealed to us. And the Bible says that we are betrothed. We are engaged in a stronger sense. We are in a committed engagement to the Lord. Awaiting that great day when we will enjoy the marriage supper of Jesus. And as his bride of the church, we will be joined to him. And so in the meantime, we're to grow in our relationship 
and in the knowledge of him. But there are those who will seek to distort, pervert, confuse people's understanding of who God is. The Bible tells us that as Christians, we have an adversary. Bertram spoke about him earlier. We have an opponent called Satan. And Jesus called him out. He said, he's the father of lies. And his aim is to steal, kill, and destroy. Is to lie and deceive and rob people of relationship with God. And so as we get into our text, considering verse 17 as our leading, John said in verse 17, the world is passing away. Note that. The world is passing away along with its desires. You see, our very own inclinations can be enticed and can be motivated to cause us to forsake the Lord. This is what James says, yeah? That when we are tempted, we are drawn away and enticed of our own selves. And so there are things in this life and there are things in this world that would seek to entice us away. But then it gets deeper than that. Because it's not just a matter of things seeking to entice us away, but we then see that actually there are those who are agents of the devil who are placed to try and bring confusion as they promote lies. And so John says, look, children in his fatherly mode, speaking to all the children of God, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Now we hear this and we think, I can't even say Twilight Zone because most people don't even, even know what I'll be talking about. I heard one, one person say, these verses of scripture, these, the scripture verses like this, it's the last hour. The Antichrist has come. These scriptures are like those moments. You remember Scooby-Doo? And they would be walking, was it, was it Velma? And Shaggy and Scooby, and they'd be walking. I have a bad feeling about this. And you're thinking to yourself, why are you there? You don't have to be. I have a bad feeling about this. And they're walking around and it's eerie and Scooby, Shaggy. <laughs> and this, this, is, this is that kind of verse, right? It is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. Look, what does it mean? Is it something we should be scared of? Well, when it speaks of being the last hour, we recognize that Scripture tells us human history will have a definite end. And there will be a point at which history as we know it 
will come to an end. And a new age, a new era will be ushered in with the return of Christ. So if there is a definite point at which that's going to happen, surely there must be some kind of countdown, right? Well, the scripture is telling us that we are in the last stage of that countdown. This was echoed in Acts chapter 2. And you don't have to turn there. On the day of Pentecost. So on the day of Pentecost, the 120 followers of Christ were in the upper room awaiting the promise of Jesus that they would be endowed with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in other languages by his enabling. And they poured out onto the streets of Jerusalem where there were masses of people there. And the people looked at them and said, these, what's going on with these guys? What's this commotion all about? Are oh, they drunk? And yet the apostle Peter stood there among them, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, he's now quoting, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So as the apostle Peter stood there, quoting from Joel 2, he was stating that what was happening to them as apostles, being endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit, was the fulfillment of that which was prophesied hundreds of years ago and marks the fact that the last days have begun. Now you'd find it to be an interesting Bible study if you took, your, took the time to do so. But fundamentally we see that the last days began at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the last days will end at the return of Jesus Christ. And so, basically the Apostle John in our text is showing us in 1 John 2 there, that look, we're in the last of that time. The coming of Christ is near. And truly, all that has been spoken of as characterizing that period in history is being fulfilled. And one way in which it's being fulfilled is that there are antichrists who are about and they're busy. Antichrists who are of the same attitude, same motivation, the same spirit as the antichrist. The one individual who was prophesied of old who would come and fulfill this role. And what is that role? Well, it's pretty much what it says on the tin. 
one who is anti-Christ, one who is opposed to Christ. It's a specific individual that is being spoken of. And we see this in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. If I have that, yeah. Now, this is going to be a very obscure section of scripture for many of you, and something that you can even go back into our um, iTunes archive and look at a series called The Times of the Signs, where as we were going through the book of Mark, we, I, went, I took, um, went to great lengths to be able to explain all of this. So that's, a, that's available on, uh, um, online there on the iTunes. But this scripture here speaks to us of an individual who will come. And they will come in opposition to Christ. But the term antichrist is not only one who opposes Christ, but one who stands as a substitute or in place of Christ, who exalts themselves as Christ, but is not truly Christ. This is Daniel 9, 26 and 27. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come. Now this is the the phrase that's used here. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Speaking of Jerusalem and the temple. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And that's basically the violation of all that is godly and sacred. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. On the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you think of the word desolate, barren, empty, purposeless, fruitless, worthless. Somebody said, oh, that house is a desolate house. You know there's nothing good going on in that house. It's just a problem. It's trouble. And this is what we see being prophesied of the one who will come. This is also spoken of in Revelation chapter 13. And um, I encourage you to read that chapter in your own time. But in that chapter, the Antichrist is referred to as the beast. And I know Revelation is one of those books. It's another one of those Scooby-Doo moments where you're kind of scared to read it. Some people are just like, I can't read that book. I just have nightmares. And yet they'll sit down and watch Saw Free or whatever and all the horror films. But there's a, certain, there's a certain depth and reality to the book of Revelation that causes even the most stout-hearted individual to tremble. And quite rightly so. Because it speaks of the time of the end. It speaks of those... That, that, that season, that era that ushers in the coming of Christ 
and the wickedness that will be unleashed upon the earth. And so the beast is an individual who is opposed to God. He establishes a a false belief system. And in doing so, seeks to prevent people from having genuine relationship with God. Revelation and Revelation chapter 13 is a study in itself. My point simply is this, that there is an individual who is predicted to enter into human history as one who will globally identify himself in the place of Christ and yet who is a liar. And so John tells us that the Antichrist, you've heard the Antichrist is coming. You've heard Antichrist is coming. But now many Antichrists have come. Even at the time of writing. And we're talking a short period of time after Jesus' resurrection. A short period of time after the birth of the church. And yet there were already those who were in opposition to Christ. Already those who were seeking to exalt themselves as Christ. Now, in our day and age, that isn't really hard to appreciate. We see it in the media. We see it in our education establishments. We see it everywhere. The fact that people are opposed to Christ. And John says... Therefore, because of this, we know that it is the last hour. So if you had any doubt as to where are we at in God's eternal time frame, and where are we at in, in, the, in the chronology of history, you can be certain that we are in the last hour. Because there are many antichrists, many who intentionally and willfully oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a friend who is a lecturer um, in geology. And as a lecturer in university in geology, he's required to teach the curriculum. And there is a certain degree of leeway that he has in teaching the curriculum, generally speaking. And yet, as one who is a committed Christian, and in fact is a a pastor, he appreciated that there were aspects of the curriculum that he would lose his, he would compromise his conscience and his convictions if he were to teach them as prescribed. You imagine He's a lecturer in geology. So he's talking about the age of the earth. And with that, raises the issue of evolution. Now, as a lecturer in geology, 
one who is a scientist and knows about these things, he confidently holds the conviction of God's creation of the world in six days. He's a six-day creationist. Now, is he just one of those dumb Christians having blind faith? No, he's a scientist. And yet, as he has approached teaching the curriculum, he's recognized, okay, look, if I teach what I want to teach, I'm going to lose my job. If I teach what they want me to teach, I'm going to lose my testimony. And so he prayed and he asked God for wisdom. And he said, okay, look, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to present the truth. I'm just going to present the facts scientifically. And as he, as he has done so over the years, he has said that the response has been phenomenal. Because as he as a scientist has been prepared to pose questions about the evidence that others choose not to ask because of their bias, students have sat there and he's watched the light go on in all of these. He said there was one occasion where he had a girl in tears at the end of the lecture. Tears, crying. He didn't know what was going on. She had her head down on the desk. And there were a few other people that had seemed quite stirred by it. He said, look, I didn't preach Christ. I didn't refer to the Bible. I just presented the evidence and asked the questions that most scientists are not willing to ask. It's not that they're not aware of them. They're not willing to ask because of their bias against God. So he walked up to this girl and, to paraphrase, it's a long time since he told me this story. She basically said, look, when I consider the facts that you've presented and I consider the genuine answers to the questions that you've given, it can only mean one thing. We didn't evolve. And if we didn't evolve, then what? God must have made us. This is somebody who, by their own admission as a student, atheist and so on, had no allegiance to, to God, had no allegiance to the scriptures, no church-going experience, but sat there under the weight of the reality that there is a God to whom we must give an account. And that's why she was in tears. And yet we recognize that as a scientist, qualified in his field, experienced, capable lecturer, who hasn't deposited his brain when he became a Christian, still, he's not freely able to speak of the God who made this world. Why is that? Because many antichrists exist. And so, that is a clear characteristic of the time in which we live. And the unfortunate thing is, there are many, even within the church, even within the church, in fact, even within this church maybe, 
And you're like, well, why would we be here? I mean, surely we're all pro-Christ. But are there things in our lives that we would have as substitutes for Christ? Are there areas of our lives where we do not submit to Christ? That we choose to take our own view and do our own thing and walk our own way rather than his? Are there areas of scripture where we close the book? Maybe it conflicts with your political views. Maybe it conflicts with your personal preferences. Jesus said this in Mark 9, 40. When considered, when considering those who are for or against, Jesus made it clear that there is no middle ground. It's either you're for or you're against. And if by default, someone has said, yeah, well, mm, Jesus, maybe. If you remain in that position, if you, if you are confirmed in that position, you're actually against. There's no middle ground. And you're in that realm of those who are anti-Christ. Because even in that place, you know about Jesus and you know enough about Jesus to believe even and to surrender your life to him, but you choose not to because there are other things that are more important to you than the Son of God. And if you're in a place where you've not surrendered and confessed Christ as Lord of your life and repented of your sin, then you are considered amongst those who are anti-Christ. And so I appeal to you today, if that's you, Turn to Christ. Submit your life to him and be saved. Because a healthy church has a vigorous immune system that rejects the virus of heresy and even the heretics who promote it. This is something that may come as a shock or a surprise to many of us. But we see, John said, look, these people were among us and they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You see, the church is a place of welcome. The church is a place, is, is truly an, a, an ark of safety to those who desire to be safe. And yet, the church is also a place of holiness and a place of God's righteousness. And we see clearly that 
this wasn't strange for John to consider the fact that there were people who were repelled, whether it was intentionally by reason of leadership saying, don't come around here no more with your, your funny stories and your heretical doctrines. And there is a time in the life of leadership where we have to be prepared to say that and do it. And yet, even before things get to that point, the healthy immune system of a healthy church is supposed to have people within the congregation so well versed in the Lord who know their God and who are strong and who are able to say, Narcissus, actually, that doesn't agree with scripture. And every place that person turns, they're supposed to meet Nah, bruv, actually, that's not consistent with Scripture to the point where they have no audience and they have no one who's going to entertain the heresy. And so may we be a healthy church. May we be a people who hold fast to the Word of God and even if it's our best friend, we're not afraid to say, hmm, you know what, I don't really think that agrees with scripture, you know. Let's go and talk to Elder Bertram because it's a bit concerning. Now we appreciate that heresy and error are two different things. There are going to be things, particularly on non-essential issues, where we will see it differently. And it's not something that we need to part company over. And we must be balanced and charitable, loving in the way that we consider such things. And yet there are fundamentals, as we see in the text, concerning the deity of Christ, concerning his sacrifice for sin, concerning the nature of God, that are non-negotiable. And we should not entertain. In verse 20, we have been anointed by the Holy One and all have knowledge. Now remember the backdrop. First John written in the time of the Gnostics who were all about secret knowledge. And it's only when you are initiated into our club, into our community group, into our Bible study, and then you've passed through the ranks, can you be enlightened to this secret knowledge? Some might call it today revelation knowledge. Only when you've been tarrying in the throne room like me can you know such lofty revelations of God. But verse 20 says, you have, you collectively, each one of you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. Now the term anointed relates back to the Old Testament. And there were two people who were anointed in the Old Testament, the priest and the king. And what would happen is they would take oil and they would pour it on them as signifying the authorization to serve in the capacity in which they were called signifying God's authorizing of them, enabling and empowering of them by his Holy Spirit. 
Now, as we step into the New Testament, we recognize that Jesus is the anointed one. Unfortunately today, there are those individuals who walk around as if they have some kind of exclusive anointing, some kind of special empowering, some kind of special endowment that is unique to them and cannot be touched. Touched not the Lord's anointed. But it says here, actually, we've all been anointed. Touched not the Lord's anointed. <laughs> you see, that all that does is create hierarchy where there's not supposed to be any. It just elevates people and gives place to spiritual pride. But we have all been anointed, and that basically means that we have all received the spirit of Christ. Christ means anointed. In Hebrew, Messiah or Mashiach. It means anointed. He who is anointed. He who is the anointed one. And as one who believes in Christ Jesus, you have received the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the anointed one, therefore having been anointed. And have knowledge. Now, John elaborates on this further down. But he's reassuring them, look, don't let anyone try pull a rank on you, try and big up themselves over you as if you don't know the truth. The truth is not a secret. It is revealed by the Word and the Holy Spirit, who all Christians have spirit and the truth. And so that's why John can say, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. When Pastor Bill was here the other day, I heard him state a phrase I haven't heard for ages. He said, many lies are are made up of or consist of half-truths. But half a truth is a whole lie. And so if it's not consistent fundamentally with the truth of God's word, which we have received, otherwise we wouldn't even be Christians. It is the gospel that entered into our hearts and brought light understanding of Jesus Christ. This is the truth that is being spoken of. It's not some non-essential side issue. Well, who was Melchizedek? And who were his parents? Was it Jesus? What, like, you know what? It's not that. It's the gospel truth that is being spoken of here. And who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the anointed one, 
the one who is God made manifest in the flesh. And we talked about that earlier on in the series, the way in which the Gnostics viewed Christ as, a, as, 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 a, as one who was either a God ghost or who wasn't God at all. Because he couldn't have been physical, he couldn't have been in, in a material body and truly be God. Because the physical is evil in their eyes. And so they were trying to encourage this doctrine within the church in so many ways as people encourage false doctrine in the church today. And yet, John pulls no punches. Who is the liar? Not even who holds a different perspective. Who has a different interpretation? Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That is a lie. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. You know, spirituality is really kind of commonplace today and you know, people consider themselves as really spiritual people in whatever fashion that might take. You'll even have those who will be like, yeah, I believe in God. Me and God are all right. That Jesus, though, don't really know. Listen. You do not know the Father if you don't have the Son. As one man said, it's like trying to buy Prada and you don't have the funds. There is no goal. There is no relationship. Jesus said in John 14, no one comes to the Father but through me. And so we appreciate that Jesus is the means to relationship with the Father. And not the Jesus that I want to make him up to be, but the Jesus of Scripture. And that's important because people want to redefine terms and think that we're talking the same talk. They say Jesus, I say Jesus. But they're talking about a different Jesus. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 1, if I or anyone else or even an angel come proclaiming a different gospel, let me be accursed, damned. Because it is the Jesus as revealed in the gospel that brings us into relationship with the Father. And so we see that as the gospel continues in us, it enables us to continue in God. We are preserved. We persevere by means of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that should be a relief to those who know God. If you truly know God, you should not fear losing your salvation. Remember we looked in Jonah, Jonah chapter 2. Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord. If salvation belongs to the Lord and it is granted by the Lord, then it's his I can't lose what's not mine. It's his. It's his work. And he sustains and he keeps 
by means of the gospel. And so let us not find ourselves in a place where we get bored of the gospel. We get bored of the good news of Jesus Christ. We get bored of the Bible and the truths of scripture. And we start getting itchy feet and thinking, you know what? Maybe something in this Kabbalah business, you know? These, these what's, what's it? The, 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 the laws of return or whatever they call it. Maybe there's something in there, you know? Maybe I need to listen to some of them TED Talks and, and get some enlightenment on how to really live life and make my future sure. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If it abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. It, the gospel keeps us. Oh, you don't know how much that excites me. Because it, it takes the stress off. It takes, it takes the, the, the work out of, Lord, am I okay today? If I die right now, am I going to be with you? I don't have to fret over that. I've received the gospel. I am saved by the gospel. I am kept by the gospel. You don't know what I'm talking about. Come on. Oh, my gosh. Listen. And this is the promise. Eternal life, not temporary. It's not like today you're saved, tomorrow you're not. It's eternal life. Oh, gosh. Come on. Ah, thank you, Lord. The life that you have been granted by God is eternal. Eternal. Eternal in the heavens. Eternal. It's sure. As surely as you believed on Christ. It's eternal life. Not temporary. Not fleeting. Not passing. Not sometimes. (laughs) Some days. Yeah. Oh, some days. No. It's not that. We have received eternal life as the gospel of Christ abides in us. And so beware of those, verse 26, who are trying to deceive. John didn't play. He didn't pet. He said, look, I'm going to expose their schemes, expose their strategies so that you know. They're trying to deceive you. Draw you away from the gospel. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you need, you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, I used to read this verse, right? I can't even lie and get arrogant and be like, I've got the Holy Spirit. I don't need to listen to no man because I've received the anointing of God. I've believed on Christ. And so that anointing that I've received will teach me all things. Why do I need to listen to some guy? That's not what the scripture means. And when I learned rightly what it meant, I had to repent of my arrogance. Firstly, John is speaking to the people collectively. No individual has a monopoly on truth. Just because we have personally the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit in us 
is, is, is exclusive or separate from the Holy Spirit in another believer. We are part of the body. And the truth of God, as revealed in his word, is testified to and amened by the body. Amen? And so there should be no lone rangers, no Zorros, riding around, doing their own thing. It should be the, the League of Extraordinary Believers. As we find that there is safety in the multitude of counsel. We find that those gifts of teaching, Scripture's not going to contradict itself. Ephesians 4 said that Jesus gave gifts to the church. One of which is the ministry of the teacher. We see this spoken of in Romans 12. So why would Jesus appoint the ministry of the teacher when no one needs to be taught? Ah, let's clarify this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I love this on my days. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read the whole chapter because I love it when Scripture interprets Scripture. And when I came... And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, in brackets, like the Gnostics. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What did he desire to know? Jesus Christ and him crucified. The only, yeah? Basics, fundamental, the gospel. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret. Hold on, I thought the gospel weren't secret. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But... As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Note that. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches anything, everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, we see in verse 10, what eye hasn't seen or ear heard or the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. We see the uh, Apostle Paul go on to clarify Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. And so, basically, what we understand from this, and our text in 1 John chapter 2, is that a person cannot know God, a person cannot appreciate the gospel apart from a work of God's Holy Spirit in their heart. And that work of God's spirit has taken place in the heart of all who believe the gospel. And so therefore, it is the Holy Spirit who affirms the gospel to our hearts. Amen? It's not of ourselves and it's not of some individual who is going to say, this is truth. Hear it. Know it. You got it? It's not based on an individual. But it's based on a work of of God's spirit. And so the ability to understand the word of God comes by the spirit of God. Amen? And so this is what John is saying. As we read the Bible as believers, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand. When we hear the Bible taught by those who are gifted and called to do so, It is the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand. Not exclusive of anyone else, because the Holy Spirit is working through the teacher. The Holy Spirit is working through our brothers and sisters as we reason over the scripture, helping us to understand. So these verses don't mean, you know what? I am now ready to go and be a one-man band. I'm ready to go and walk in the fullness of the revelation of God as given by the anointing of his spirit and I need no one else. That is gross error. And so, abide in him so that when he appears, what does this all build up to? This all builds up to us having a confidence in Christ that when we see him, we will rejoice. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We can have confidence at the coming of Christ. And one of the things that gives our hearts confidence 
that we don't have to be ashamed when we see him is that we practice righteousness. And that's not just being moral, being a good person. Well, you know, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I go to church every Sunday. No. Righteousness is more than, real, more than morality. Righteousness is more than morality. Righteousness is walking in God's will. Walking in right standing with God. And so quite simply, if we're walking in righteousness, we won't be inclined to endorse gay marriage. Because even on a human moral fair level, it seems like, well, why not? They love one another. But God's word says differently. We're not going to endorse abortion because as much as it might seem pro-choice and it's only right, it's only fair, God's word says differently. And there are many people who would consider themselves moral upright citizens who would endorse both of those things. And so righteousness is a heart submitted to the will of God in whatever it requires because it has been changed, transformed by the gospel of Christ. Because we appreciate that we're sinners before God in and of ourselves. And yet, Jesus is the savior. And this is why John at this point as we close, John zones out. John's just, the words on the page just cannot do justice to the strength of sentiment being communicated here. John speaks in a figure of speech that bursts forth from the soul. I love some translations, they say, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. It's like, are you, are you nuts that we should be called the children of what love is this that the Father has given us? He zones out at the revelation of God's love as revealed in Christ Jesus. And even the thought of knowing that huh, he's going to appear. And when he appears, we shall be completely like him. We will be transformed, our sanctification complete. We will be absolutely like him and be able to enjoy him and all that he is without restriction, without hindrance. No more, Lord, I know I shouldn't have said those things. Lord, I know I shouldn't have had my anger get the better of me. Forgive me, Lord. I thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses my sin. Thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit. I'm going to press on. And we won't have to deal with them things no more. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I heard Tim Keller say that everything that you would desire in life is fulfilled in God. Everything that you look to for some kind of satisfaction, delight, or fulfillment 
finds its ultimate consumption in God. The question is, do we see that? I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. I say it often. When we find in ourselves desires, nothing in this world can satisfy. We can only conclude that we were made for more than this. And we as the bride, like the bride and the groom that prepare themselves as an engaged couple to be married, looking forward to that time when they are able to share unveiled, naked intimacy. They purify themselves. They prepare themselves. Guys hit the gym. Girls hit the gym. Lay off the Doritos, the cakes. Want to fit into that dress. Want to have that great day when they will be joined together as one. And this is the result of all those that love the appearing of the Lord. It motivates us to say, I'm going to go hard for you, Lord. And I'm going to give myself to you and all that I am here and now, looking forward to when it will be unrestricted. Do you purify yourself as he is pure? May God grant the revelation of the gospel afresh to our hearts by which we are kept. The gospel that is true and not a lie by which we are prepared for our union with Christ. I'm going to ask the band to return as we pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the glorious light of your gospel. The glorious light of your gospel that transforms lives. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit who who switches the lights on in our head when it comes to understanding your word. And as we fellowship with one another and as we receive your word, we can have confidence that we are able to understand it because of your presence in the hearts of those who believe. Thank you, Lord God, for keeping us in the power of your gospel, even amid much lies and distortion and confusion and noise in life. So many voices so much to say that is contrary to you and yet Lord we do not need to fear being deceived and led astray because your spirit is at work sustaining us in the power of the gospel as we hold fast by your grace we thank you Lord 
And our prayer today is that every individual would walk out of here, Lord, appreciating and understanding and knowing where we stand with you in light of your good news. And that we would look forward to your coming, Lord. And the revelation, the complete revelation, the unveiling of who you are as we're united to you. Thank you, Lord God. You're so good. So good. Thank you, Lord. We bless your name. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.